Like I was MAGA, the activist, all in, advocating for Trump, getting friends of mine who rarely voted to vote for Trump. That night, there was validation for us. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Rich Logis. Rich is a former MAGA activist who's now working to talk other people out of that movement. If you're interested in better understanding what attracted someone like him, a former Nader supporter, into Trump's orbit and how he escaped, you should listen. So first my sponsor, then my interview with Rich at Perfect Our Union. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. So Rich, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Uh, thank you for having me. First off, uh, it's my pleasure to be here. Rich Logis, I'm down in Florida. I've been here for many years. I'm just a regular, everyday dad, husband, working class guy, small business owner, and happened to be in the MAGA world for about half a decade before I decided to leave that world, which we'll get into some of the reasons why I was attracted to it and now why I am working to help others leave MAGA, which is not going to be a, as I see it, a one election cycle endeavor. I see it as a long-term endeavor. And my hope today is that for listeners, most are going to either know someone, a friend, family member who perhaps is still in the thrall of MAGA and there's some frustration. And I'm going to try to help bring some, to quote the book of Isaiah, bring some good news to the afflicted today. It's hard to argue with that. Why don't you tell me that story then? First, what gets you into politics in the first place? Sure, sure. There's, I would say my bio MAGA related, there's really three sections to it. And I'll go into detail on, on each of the three. The first is why I gravitated to MAGA in the Trump campaign. The second is why I stayed. And the third is why I left. And then I would say perhaps actually there is a fourth, which is why I'm working now to help others leave. So my entree into MAGA, we have to go all the way back to the year 2000. I was 23 years old. I was living in New York. I was graduating college that year. Went to Iona University. Now it's a university. It used to be a college. I discovered a candidate named Ralph Nader. Now, I knew that as a New Yorker, my vote was not really going to make a difference in the electoral outcome because of the Electoral College, but I wasn't really focused on that. I came to realize about Ralph Nader that even though there were some policies, yes, that I agreed with him on ideologically, what I discovered is that both parties didn't like him. Now, I know the Democratic Party disliked him a bit more. I think the Democratic Party liked him more, and he was much more aligned with the Democratic Party. But, and that was the problem for them, was that he appealed to the same voters. Well, I'll, I'll say as a, a bit of an early hot take here that I think the data shows that Ralph Nader's candidacy actually helped Al Gore. And I think it encouraged more turnout for the Al Gore campaign. But for those who are still thinking about Florida, a reminder that actually in this and, and I'm not a I didn't vote for George W. Bush, of course, as a Ralph Nader voter that the Supreme Court, their decision was actually a 7-2 decision about the recount based on the equal protection argument. So that's, a, of course, a separate matter. And, and in hindsight, yes, I think that the country would have likely been better off had Al Gore won. What made a, a 
a sense that someone didn't like either parties appeal to you? So as a 23-year-old, that was when I started to become political in my adult life. It was an infancy for me of this, looking back on it now, unhealthy dislike of the two-party system. But what, where was that coming from? Why did you feel that way? What I admired about Ralph Nader at the time is that uh, I, what I thought was a genuine rebelliousness to him, that there was this rogue, maverick quality that he was willing to take on this duopoly of two very powerful parties. And I think at the time really did speak to people we'll call who were more in the maybe the middle class, working class demographics, where he would talk about government services and he would talk about Medicare for all. Some may disagree on those policies, whether they, how uh, effective they might be and their efficacy. But there was something about the Ralph Nader campaign that was actually very politically exciting. And even when I look back on it now, 23 years ago, I, I still feel that excitement that Ralph Nader brought to politics. I did feel that his campaign was a very inclusive campaign. And as a young person, sometimes we don't necessarily always think through our decisions logically. A lot of the support for Ralph Nader, it, it definitely was for me at the time driven emotionally. Did you pay attention to the John McCain campaign that year? Because he was running as a maverick against a more establishment Republican. Did, did he have appeal to you? I, I didn't really think positively or negatively about John McCain. I was generally indifferent to his campaign. Once I discovered Ralph Nader as a candidate, I was pretty early a supporter, and that support did not wane. The other part about Ralph Nader's campaign that I look back on it now and, and respect and admire about it is that there was this message from his overall campaign that the two political parties have to earn their votes, that yes, we're in a two-party system. Yes, most voters will side with one of the other two parties. But earning it, that was something that I also related to. And it's not that I was a, a business owner, but I was very much a hardworking student, was attempting to go to graduate school, always competing with other students, trying to get into schools and test scores and all of that. And so when I heard Ralph Nader talking about that neither of the two parties is owed anyone's votes, I said, yeah, I concur with that. He's right about that. And when I would talk with voters out and about, even when they would say to me, well, I'm going to vote for, or I'm going to vote Bush. I remember having conversations with others and asking them, but don't you think that Nader is, is at least logically correct about that premise that you have to earn votes? And virtually everyone, Nathaniel would say, yeah, I agree with that. But they were partisan voters for whatever reason. But yet still, there was still that common ground. So I'm guessing that what you're saying here is that this appeal of an outsider candidate like Nader, that Trump also fit that bill for you. Well, that yes. And so fast forward 15 years after the 2000 election, those who say today, oh, I supported Donald Trump when he came down the escalator. I, I was not such a supporter. Of course, the name brand and the, the international name recognition. I had actually interviewed Trump a handful of times when I was a local reporter in New York many years ago, but not politics related. It was related to business and real estate. Now, after coming down the escalator, declaring his campaign, I, I wasn't really in at his announcement speech. But just like with Ralph Nader's campaign, I figured out pretty early, I would say even a few months after he declared, I started to identify, there was to quote Yogi, Yogi Berra, deja vu all over again. I started to see that in this case, I think genuinely both parties actually didn't like Trump because he had opposition vehemently from the Democrats and vehemently from the establishment Republican Party. Once I determined that, once it was very clear to me that that was happening, I said, I'm in. It wasn't because of his comments about the American dream being dead or comments about not always sending us our best. I, I wasn't really that enamored with those statements. But what I did see in his campaign, and I, and I believe that this escalated in intensity between his declaration and the election, is I saw someone coming in. And remember, I had 15 years since Nader to, to have this 
this festering, unhealthy disdain of the two major parties because I saw them as two sides of the same coin. And while uh, I'm not a registered Democrat now, I'm registered to vote, I don't quite see the parties as the same, which we'll get into, I'm sure, later on. But with Trump, I did see a guy come in and saying, look, the two parties have failed lots of Americans. I'm coming in to take a sledgehammer to this system. And I said, I'm in. That's the kind of guy I want to support. Now, along the way, there were remarks that raised the eyebrow up to and then and then said, well, did he really, did he really say that? Along the way, Nathaniel, from the declaration up to the election, I was around many who very, very quickly became ardent Trump supporters. And being around those individuals, there wasn't simply a disagreement with the Democrats on policy or style or substance. Those I was around would talk about the Democratic Party as an existential threat. And the more I was around them, and the more impassioned my support for Trump became, more and more I started to look at Hillary as the embodiment of the two-party system that I spent the last decade and a half railing against and voting third party numerous times. And I did come to the conclusion during the course of the campaign that, yes, Hillary and the Democratic Party did pose an existential threat to our lives and our livelihoods and our families. I will fully admit that there was an illogicality to coming to that conclusion. But it goes to show how easily we can get swept up in and wrapped up in our emotions. Because for me, that election was very much a highly emotionally charged election, because I saw this guy as he's going to take the flamethrower to this system that I've stood in opposition to for many, many years. And that's what made us and made myself look the other way, see no evil, hear no evil, when he would make comments that very clearly any reasonable person would say, well, that was wrong. He should not have said that. Did he really say this? But if you believe, if someone believes that the opposition does pose a kind of threat that I saw, which is that an election of the Democratic Party and Hillary, they were going to seize power permanently. That's how I viewed that election. And if someone really thinks that, they're going to support anyone or anything. And I volunteered for the Trump campaign. I was not offered money, nor did I ask to be paid. I wrote part of the call script for the campaign. So anyone who received a call or made a call on behalf of the campaign, they were hearing or reading text that I partly wrote. I wasn't just a supporter of Nathaniel on the periphery. I was someone who was very much in MAGA activism. I felt very included in the Trump campaign. And what MAGA presents, and and this is a a point that I I, want to get into in, in a little bit in depth here, is that MAGA provides a community. And community cannot be underestimated when we look at the reasons and the motivations why people support a candidacy. Because most Americans, first off, are apolitical, which is problematic because it creates its own bubble of of its own sort. And most voters don't really make decisions on policy. Now, supporting Trump, we looked at this entire nativist concept of America first as, yes, that is resonating with me. I feel very strongly about that. Here's a person who has the audacity and the intrepidity to go and say, yes, I'm going to be not the president of the world, but the president of the United States. And Nathaniel, I was all in. I was all in. Can I ask you a question? Please. Do you know know who Christian Picciolini is? Don't recognize that name off the top of my head. He he had a book called back in 2017 called White American Youth, My Descent into America's Most Violent Hate Movement and How I Got Out. And he and I interviewed him back that year. And he had been a violent skinhead sort of racist person in a kind of a gang. And he, he had done a lot of things that he was not proud of and that are hard to hear if, if, if you listen. 
but he had gotten himself out of it. And now he he's run a series of different organizations that are trying to pull people out of extremism. So there's a parallel to your story there. What I remember from the interview is that he, it was community for him. Like it really, it, it filled a need for him at who, who of kind of an alienated young man. I think he, he made his mistakes in his teen years, more or less. I don't remember how far they went into his twenties. It seems like organizations that can provide that to you, which you got out of Nader, the community can be healthy and it can be unhealthy, but it can be attractive in either case. Yes, fully concur. I always felt that I was excluded. And I think the inclusive-exclusive dynamic is really quite relevant when we're speaking about MAGA. Because when, when I was around all of these Trump supporters and all of these anti-Democrat opposition in terms of what, what they saw as this moment in American history where we had to stop Hillary Clinton. We had to stop the Democratic Party. And again, I'm not saying this, Nathaniel, as a self-defense, but my entree into MAGA being, I'm, I really dislike both of these parties. Yes, it was an unhealthy dislike, but I think looking back on it is a relatively anodyne reason for supporting Trump. It's a non-controversial reason. I get what you're saying. It seems strange to me to pick a real estate billionaire with gold faucets and multiple wives and some other unsavory characteristics as that messianic figure, though. So there's, I think, a multi-layered explanation to that. And one of them that I come back to all the time, and you're going to hear me mention this word a handful of times today, is mythology. There was and there is, for those who remain in the thrall of MAGA, there is something just mythological about the Trump persona and ethos. When we would look at Trump, we used to think, okay, he's actually going to lose money in running for president and serving as president. Yes, he's had all this success. Yes, his name is across the world on buildings. He was a billionaire, as we believed. And we looked at this as, wow, this guy's making actually a pretty significant sacrifice to do this job, which we concluded he's doing the job for the right reasons. Yes, he's not the most articulate guy, but when he'd go into rallies and he'd say, take that son of a bitch right out, we used to say, that's the kind of guy, we need a son of a bitch to be the president of the United States. All of that lent itself to this mythology of coming in and saying, yes, this guy is the general and we are this patriotic army who's going to serve as a bulwark, a defense. We're on the right side of history. We're the good and we're going to fight the evil. And the evil were the Democrats and rhinos, Republicans in name only, and the globalists. And that, and that, that segue there from the campaign to winning on election night, I'm writing this ebook and I, the introduction to the book is election night 2016. And we felt, and I'm saying we, those who supported Trump, we felt, and, and maybe even more specific than that, Nathaniel, there's a lot of Trump voters who were just partisan Republicans. You know, maybe they held the nose, voted for him, or, you know, the dad voted for Reagan, grandfather voted for Ike, and they just pulled the lever for Trump. This is what they do. They vote Republican. But for MAGA, like I was MAGA, the activist, all in, advocating for Trump, getting friends of mine who rarely voted to vote for Trump. That night, there was validation for us. I mean, the presidential election, I don't think it's hyperbole to say, a presidential election is probably the most visible competition in the world. And so on this truly international stage, we made possible the impossible. It's inexplicable. It had to be experienced. The joy, the ecstasy, this feeling of, we made the correct decision. I don't recall ever a, a singular day or night, Nathaniel, where my phone, so many calls, so many messages, staying up all night. And I'm on public record having said in a radio show in Philly, I'm on public record having said that Trump would be the nominee and that he would win the general election. You know, I don't think it's 
wholly different than how many people felt about Obama on the other side. Obama felt like he was more intelligent, more articulate, more thoughtful than your average person and that we were making a good decision. And when I watch Trump, he doesn't seem ordinary to me. His ability to maintain his point of view through obstacles, to stand up in court today and fight on in in the face of of so much being thrown at him, if he were doing that in the service of something other than Trump that was right and good, it would be admirable, I think. If, if he weren't lying and misleading people, you know, you would think this is a great man. He has a talent, I think, as a communicator and as almost an entertainer to attract the eyeball. That observation, which I think is keenly correct on what you said, that that's actually a great, that point is a great segue into why I gravitated to the campaign and why I stayed in MAGA. Actually, there's two points that I want to make, if I may. The first point I want to make is that most MAGA voters, I believe deep, deep down, are actually good people. And I'm not talking about the ones, the insurrectionists, the ones who very openly side with the racism and the Nazism. Yes, they exist. But I, I do think that most MAGA voters deep down, there is a decency to them. I think they're just mostly regular people and they have a different lens. I, I th- yes. My plumber in, in Vermont is a Trump supporter. I don't see anything objectionable about him at all. I'm not exactly sure I could sort out why he is attracted. I haven't had that long of a conversation about it. I wouldn't want to paint him in a negative way. Sure. I'm going to try to deconstruct that point about how this seeming contradiction can be. So that's the first point that I do think most MAGA voters, good and decent people deep down. And there's there's a second point here. Whatever one's view of Mr. Trump as a person, not all of the reasons for supporting him were good reasons, but there were actually some good reasons. And again, I don't say this as a self-defense. For example, this feeling that this election showed, and it was why it was such a shock to the two parties, is that both parties realized, wow, there are really tens and tens of millions of people who are really pissed off at us. That was manifest in the fact that that Trump won because these two parties realized, wow, there is really a lot of dissatisfaction. And some of those reasons include, for example, this feeling of being unseen, unheard, left behind, unrecognized, seeing jobs going overseas for many years, which we know is a, was a bipartisan cause, yes. Watching and seeing and observing communities get hollowed out. These were valid reasons for supporting Trump. And for, for those who are the good people deep down, you know, the plumber in Vermont, how do we reconcile this? Like you said, there's nothing outwardly objectionable about him. But those good and decent people, even right now to this day as we're speaking, those individuals, while they had some good reasons for supporting Trump, what Trump and MAGA and the right wing and the Republican Party do, and they did and they continue to do and they will continue to do, is they traumatize these voters. They exploit these fears and concerns that they have. So when you mention about Trump being this communicator, again, I don't differ with that. But what he does is he figured out, probably accidentally, to be honest, but nonetheless, he figured out what some of these fears and panics were among so many of the MAGA voters. And it's why there is this exploitation that occurs. And again, I'm not going to defend ignorance here. The fear of immigrants and things like that. There's panics about, I I always sum it up this way, uh, gays, sex, marriage, uh, anything with Caucasian, Christian theocracy, meaning we're becoming a more secular nation. And then there's this, this racial animus, which immensely accelerated under Obama because the Republican Party, by the time Trump came around, there was a red carpet rolled out. And Trump knew that there were a lot of 
angry people at the government. And he also knew that some percentage of people who were going to vote for him felt this, what actually is a, a natural fear of change. You know, we have that inherent in our nature where we, we see changes and we feel like they're happening so rapidly. I mean, there's no other real explanation why Trump would have focused in on immigrants and Islam and talking about the Second Amendment groups and having an emphasis on white men. That was not implicit and implied in his campaign. It was quite explicit. And in the MAGA world, I came to adhere to and adopt all of these politically traumatizing and traumatic mythologies, the exploitive mythologies about the Democrats coming for our guns. And whenever Trump was attacked, like you're mentioning today about the legal cases, when when I was in MAGA, when Trump was attacked by the press or the Democrats, or he was impugned by the Mitt Romney Republicans, that didn't cause us to second guess our support. It actually strengthened the bond because it wasn't just that they were attacking Keith. They were coming for all of us. There's this famous meme, and I'm not sure it's Genesis where it originated from. It's black and white. It's Trump sitting sitting down. He's got his hand in a gun formation. And the text says, they're not after me. They're after you. I'm just in the way. And we really believe that. I mean, we truly deep down, you hook a lot of tech chest up to us, would have shown we were telling the truth. So when everyone came at him, what Trump was able to do is say, look, they're not just coming for me. They're actually coming for you. After the 2020 election, it was, they didn't defraud me. They defrauded you. Looking at the legal cases, they didn't indict me. They're not weaponizing law enforcement against me. They're doing it against you. And those who are in MAGA internalize that and, and feel that Trump takes on that martyred position. So once somebody gets in deep and has that feeling of solidarity with him, it seems very, very hard to extricate that person, maybe impossible, or for them to extricate themselves. So what happened to you that did pull you out? If Trump had won the 2020 election, and I just want to say, I actually never believed that the election was stolen. I didn't think the vaccine killed anyone. I, I never believed that. I didn't think COVID was some Bill Gates, Anthony Fauci conspiracy. In fact, I was actually telling many that Joe Biden absolutely had a chance to win because of all the sheer hatred for Trump, that that would be a compelling motivator for many. There was a, a way in which you had your head in reality. I had little glimmers of, of light that came through the dark clouds. Now, I did see Joe Biden, Joe Biden, excuse me, the same as I did Hillary, another existential threat. So I didn't buy into stolen election and all of that rhetoric. Out of curiosity, did you kind of think, oh, this is clever of Trump. I kind of get the game he's playing. Or did you think this is really not good for the country? I was in favor of it up to a point. I had no problem at the time with him exploring the legal options. In fact, I remember having a conversation probably about a week and a half after the election with someone who was a paid Trump staffer in 2016. We believed about a week and a half after the election that somehow Trump was going to pull this out. We were going to we were going to win at the Supreme Court or we, we were going to win with the state delegation vote in the House of Representatives, which the 12th Amendment allows. We were still believing. We knew that it was going to be an uphill battle, but we thought, you know what? We're on the right side here. We're going to come through. And as it started to unfold itself more and more, I knew that that the case in the Supreme Court was December 11th, when there was that Texas lawsuit with other states that had joined in the Supreme Court, basically said, no, there's no standing. That's it. That day is when I realized we'd lost. That was the day when I said, okay, we've lost. What do we do next? Now what? If Trump had won, I am confident in saying, even though I can't prove this point, I believe that I probably would have gotten even further and deeper into the rabbit hole, and I probably would not have been able to have extricated myself out of it. So much of his thing is, I'm a winner, and that's attraction that a lot of people, maybe you also had to him. Did, yes. that, did him losing puncture that a bit? 
The reason I didn't really think of it that way is because of a point I mentioned a minute ago, is that I knew that the sheer primitive disdain for Trump was going to motivate lots of people to vote against him. And I would have these conversations often in MAGA groups. I mean, aside from being an activist and writing text, I was a sponsor at Trump groups. I spoke at Trump groups. I had this little community locally. I was telling everyone, look, I'm confident we're going to win, but don't be overconfident. Get people out to the polls. Let them know where they're voting. Make sure they're registered. If they're going to vote by mail, vote. I didn't think vote by mail was a scam or a fraud. I voted by mail. I said, make sure that they know where their polling precincts are. If they're not sure, have them call me. I'll let them know. I was still working feverishly to ensure that Trump got elected. But I knew that there was a distinct possibility that we could lose. So it didn't really puncture that mythology of I'm a winner because I, I looked at it more or less as actually a fair fight. And we came up short. In 2016, there were a handful of states where we won by tens of thousands of votes, which could have shifted the Electoral College to Hillary. And actually, the same was true in the case of Trump. If I'm remembering my numbers, I think it was a 70,000 cumulative vote difference between, I want to say, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. So right then and there, we knew that there was a matter of 50, 60, 70,000 votes that could have shifted the other way. Now, there was some thinking at the time of, okay, we lost this battle, but we're going to rebuild, we're going to restock, we're going to refuel, recharge for the greater war. I was already thinking about 24 because there was no one else in my mind. I was thinking, I want to have anyone else as the Republican nominee after Trump lost. Now, what happened between the election and summer of 2021 for me? I always like to paraphrase Hemingway that my personal and political epiphany happened gradually and then suddenly all at once. The road to Damascus moment, the personal political epiphany, the scales dropping from the eyes. My egress out of MAGA, the catalyst was not Donald Trump. It was actually Ron DeSantis. If we think back to the summer of 21, that's when we we had to deal with the Delta surge. And What I started to see in not only local reports, but national reports, were children getting sick. Now, at the time, my kids were five and two. Okay, those are the ages of my children back then. I wasn't overly concerned about them getting sick, but I did see reports of kids befalling ill, the rare reports of children dying. And that's not to suggest that any other age group dying of COVID was any less tragic. And I remember thinking with Governor DeSantis, I thought that all factors considered, he handled the pandemic in the first year and a half relatively well, considering that data was changing on a daily basis. There's a very famous photo of him pushing the senior citizen in the wheelchair for them to go and get their vaccine. He was very clearly in support of the COVID vaccine. He was saying, get it. It's going to save lives, going to reduce hospitalizations. I said, okay, great. That's the kind of leader I want to see on COVID. And then in summer of 2021, as Delta came in, I remember speaking with others, and I vividly recall these conversations, Nathaniel, where I said, you know what, Governor DeSantis is going to sever himself from all of this anti-vaccine, hysterical, paranoid propaganda. He's going to divorce himself from these individuals because his reputation as very pro-vaccine preceded him. And seemingly overnight, he not only shifted his position to anti-vaccine, but the rhetoric we hear about from him today about the vaccine, that's where it started, where he just did this seemingly overnight flip-flop, where he started talking about the vaccine as as injurious, that people were being harmed by it, that it wasn't really helping at all. It wasn't a position of, I'm against mandates, but get the vaccine, which That's not a position I agree with, but it was at least somewhat logically defensible to have said that. And that's not what he did. And I remember as we were watching kids getting sick, thinking he was going to go in one direction and went diametrically in the opposite direction. It was at that moment when I started to question my support for MAGA, for Trump, for DeSantis for the Republican Party. Because remember, as a native voter, 
I wasn't one of these guys who said, I voted Republican 30 years. I'm a you know, conservative for 30 years. No, I was a Republican for half a decade. Do you think that means it came down to the reality of your children and your feelings as a father? That is an emotional thing, if anything. Yes. Is. Yes. In full admission, the answer is yes. So when, when I, as a father of small kids, started to observe DeSantis do this, it was really like I ran face first into a concrete wall. And I just remember these late nights with just my thoughts, questioning my support, asking myself in good conscience, can I really support this? There was the shock and the jolt, but eventually that wore off to something a little bit more cerebral. I started to doubt what I believed for many years. And I asked myself a question that it sounds so simple, Nathaniel, but it's it's the it's the key question that it's I won't say it's the only question, but it's one of the primary questions you mentioned before. How do we extract MAGA voters from out of that world? I asked myself, what if it's possible that I've actually been wrong this entire time? What if it's possible? There's this mental and spiritual and moral, and for some, perhaps even physical war that goes on internally. There's this battle in your own mind and heart and soul. And it's, it's, a, it's a moment of time for me that I remember having these inner debates and, and knowing that essentially my, the vast majority of my relationships were other MAGA and Trump voters. Slowly, I came to this conclusion, I don't support this. I, I can't support this. So there was that line of demarcation when it came to children and the vaccine. But there was another reason, and it was right around the same time. So we're about six months or so after the insurrection. Trump is continuing with the stolen election rhetoric. I couldn't stand hearing it by that point. I knew he'd lost. I wish he had just left like everyone else did. I had high hopes right after we knew he lost about running again in 24. So I, I couldn't, to me, it was just more politically traumatic language about this rhetoric. I got curious and I decided to understand a little more, who were these groups, these individual, Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, Street Percenters? I used to think QAnon, I used to think of these groups as basically just fringe hobbyists. And I decided to get a little bit into a rabbit hole and, and, and try to understand them more out of this really intense curiosity. And what I came to discover is not only were they not fringe hobbyists, they were well-orchestrated, they were well-coordinated, they were well-funded, and perhaps worst of all, they had the blessing of the most powerful person in the world at the time. I was probably, for the most part, out of MAGA with DeSantis. The insurrection was really the, the final confirmation for me. So I came to these two lines of demarcation. The first part with the vaccine and DeSantis, Nathaniel, I, I, I want to explain it this way. It showed that the Republican Party and many of its influential figures deemed acceptable avoidable deaths and suffering. What happened was this acceptance of avoidable deaths and suffering. And then with the insurrection, what happened with Trump and MAGA and so many of the Republicans in the party itself was a defense and justification of politically motivated violence, a coup d'etat in which the president was responsible for it against we the people, against our, our, our democratically elected government and our constitution. And I always like to mention in this point here that Vice President Pence was 40 feet away from rioters. And I believe to this day that had they gotten a hold of him, they would have either murdered him or they would have rendered him unconscious. And there would not have been a president of the Senate as the VP is to have counted those electoral votes. And it is very, very possible that we were 40 feet away from this experiment, nearly a quarter of a millennium of progress ending that day. That was when I said with those two lines, I cannot cross those lines. I decided I could not do it. And I, and, and I give thanks every day that I didn't, Nathaniel. Hard to tell how close we came because there are awful lot of other things that could have happened. But you worked pretty hard to convert friends and to get them out to vote when you were part of the MAGA thing. Since then, as I understand it, you start to work in the other direction. Have you converted anybody? Have any of your friends come along with you out or are they in general 
stuck? I did drift away from them uh, a little bit. There were some uh, I was pretty close with. And I remember saying to a few of them here in Florida that I, I, I didn't think Charlie Crist would win the Democrat nominee, but I had said, I, I'm not going to vote for Ron DeSantis and I'm not going to vote for Marco Rubio because I do not believe anymore what they represent. Are you seeing any movement out of MAGA? It's a bit of a complicated answer. Because it feels like uh, Trump is kind of consolidating his base over over this period, oddly. But maybe you've explained it by saying when he is attacked, you rally around him. And we do know that people do fluctuate in their politics, even in our polarized world. But it doesn't feel like there's substantial movement out of MAGA at all. I, I don't think there is right now. And, and let's, again, be very candid about this. It's a Republican Party in name only. It's really a MAGA party for several reasons, but perhaps the most primary reason is, in fact, primary voters, right? The primary voters are the ones who nominate the general election candidate. And if you look at the primary voters right now, they are overwhelmingly Trump voters. And all of these other candidates who are running, not to present my own quote unquote conspiracy theory here, I think the only reason they're doing it is because they are banking on a bet of getting the nomination at the convention via a brokered nomination. Because Trump is in prison or something. Which actually very, I mean, the January 6th case starts in April. And from a lot of the legal anal anal analysis and blogs I've read, it's very possible that case could be wrapped up in a month or two. He'd get the nomination even if he were incarcerated. Right. He gave his, I mean, there, there could be a Zoom, right? There's no, there's no actual prohibition in the Constitution of the felon being the president. So what I understand about you is that you actually started an organization to try to move people. Is that correct? I did. I have a website now, which is perfectourunion.us. I wasn't entirely sure what I was, and it's just like the words in the, the preamble of the Constitution, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, written by Governor Morris, who never owned a slave and was ardently anti-slavery, and I believe is the most aspirational and inspirational mythology ever penned by a human being about freedom and self-government. But that's a, a side note, because mythologies can be aspirational and, and nefarious, which is what MAGA is about, nefarious mythologies. But I'm going to soon start up an organization that I'm going to call Leaving MAGA. And that organization is going to be devoted to the arduous work ahead of us that you just alluded to a moment ago of getting in front of MAGA voters so they can be introduced to a person such as myself because they are rarely or ever around someone who could come into a room with MAGA voters and say, I actually understand some of the reasons why you voted for Trump. I don't think you're racist or misogynistic or Islamophobic or homophobic. I don't think that about you. I'm not going to attack you, but I'm going to tell you why I left MAGA. Why do you need an organization for that, if that's, say, you? We need to build up a benevolent army because I do think that over time, Nathaniel, it's going to be slower than we'd like it to be. I do think that right now as we speak, I'm calling them secret agents, so to speak, that I do think that there are some Trump MAGA voters. Maybe they aren't in the core, core, rabid group, but there are some who are starting to have a little bit of remorse. There's some people who say in surveys that if Trump is convicted, that that might move them. That's about five percentage points. I don't frankly believe it because I think he has a knack for talking that may pull them along with him, but we'll see. I don't know what the rules will be if he's in prison and he's the nominee. Like this, this is all uncharted territory. Yeah, yeah exactly. There'll, there'll be a Zoom call from prison. Yeah. And he'll accept the nomination via a video. And and then the other candidates will be there and say, well, obviously, he's not going to win, or that's what they think, that he won't win. Um, so why don't you give me the nomination, whether it's DeSantis or Nikki Haley or, or any of these others. And, and so I, because I was a true believer, I know how strong 
that bond is between the true believers and Trump. It's not a bond whose foundation is jello. It's not a malleable bond. It is a truly rock solid bond. And because of those true believers, perhaps the truest statement that Mr. Trump ever actually said was, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and not lose any support. I will tell you amongst the true believers right now, they would still support Trump, even if he actually did that. If that's true, then why would you showing up at a group of MAGA Good question. <laughs> make a difference at all? So so there's actually, uh, so there's, in addition to MAGA voters, I'm going to tell you why I also want to be in front of those who may have very strong anti-Trump feelings. And lots of interviews that I've done, which everyone can can find them, both podcast videos at my site, perfectourunion.us. Once Leaving MAGA is up, we'll make sure that everyone receives that notification. It's very common to receive after interviews, individuals who will tell me, for example, one I received recently, Rich, my father and I had uh, a really terrible falling out because of politics and because of Trump and because of the 2016 or 2020 election and or both. And now hearing you, I'm a little bit more at, at peace based on what you're saying. I don't feel the, the quite the anger and the level of sadness that I felt when my father died. I realized that he may have actually had in his mind some good reasons for supporting Trump and I could be more at peace. That comment is an embodiment of why I think it's important for me to be in front of those who have very, very passionate anti-Trump feelings. It's not to convert them about opposing MAGA, but I know that all of them somehow have been affected. And MAGA itself, unlike another cult, Nixium, Heaven's Gate, Jonestown, Waco, any of them, thankfully, most of us are never in a cult, and most of us never know anyone who's in a cult. MAGA is a little different, though, because MAGA has permeated across every square inch of this country. Everybody has been affected by MAGA, whether they realize it or not. And so if you look at this from a sales and marketing perspective, the marketplace is already pre-qualified. And no matter where it is I go, I don't think it's really rich loges that people are interested in. I think what attracts my story to others is that it's a very unnatural act. For people to admit that they're wrong. It's not inherent, I believe, in, in our in our Homo sapiens species to do that. When you think ab about other folks around, who else comes to mind that has admitted they're wrong about something big like this? You have your Rick Wilson, you have your Joe Walsh's. I'll, um, I don't have any relationship uh, beyond just an, a Twitter acquaintance, but there was a film that came out several years ago called The Game Is Up. It's a series of interviews with former Trump voters who came to realize the errors of their ways. And I give people like that so much credit because it, in my case, I've, I've penned several mea culpas. I've had them in Newsweek, the New Republic, Salon. And so when we apologize, maybe we'll tell our husband or wife, hey, honey, I was wrong. Maybe we tell a friend and we just put it to the side and we move on. Well, I, I decided not to do that. I decided to announce it to millions of people. When I decided to publish these mea culpas, Nathaniel, I, I was ambivalent about doing it, not because I had any reticence about the outcome. I didn't think anyone would care. True. I, I really didn't think anybody would care, but I felt it personally necessary, a kind of catharsis for me to, to announce that I repudiate what it was that I supported because what I supported made me into the person I was fighting against. I was revolting against tyranny, yet I became this kind of a person. And there was a moment a little over a year ago when my wife, who's, who's naturalized, 2016 was the first time she could vote. And she's not here right now, so she can't give me the evil Wi-Fi for saying this. She told me a little over a year ago that in 2016, she actually wanted to vote for Hillary. But she didn't because she wanted to support me. And in 20. She wanted to vote for Biden and not Trump, but again, voted for Trump to support me. So I realized that I was actually a tyrant in my own home as a result of my support for MAGA. It doesn't seem to me like you can be making a living at the moment as an anti-MAGA activist. How are you making a living? This is not a 
monetary endeavor for me. Once the nonprofit is started up, I will do what all nonprofits do, which is to outreach to the marketplace to make a case why I, I would ask them for their time, talent, and treasure to invest in this organization so I could go in front of whether it's New York City liberals or rural voters in Alabama who are just devout Trump supporters. And I don't sugarcoat this. I used to say in sales trainings all the time, I cannot guarantee success. I I cannot do that. Ethically, logically, I cannot guarantee success, but I can guarantee failure. And one of the points that I'm going to implore everyone to consider is that attacking Trump voters is not helpful. I understand the temptation. I understand that feeling of how can it- I try never to do that. You avoid that to your credit. And I thank you for that because we we succumb to this temptation of, I don't understand how anybody could support this guy and look at what he says. And why don't you see this? And why don't you see that? And every time that's done, I always think back to when I was in MAGA, which is you're solidifying further that glue. And, uh, and as a person who came out of MAGA, because again, I think the interest is in a guy who changed his mind and is willing to go in front of others, not to, not to convert them, Nathaniel, or change their minds, but to get in front of them as someone who left MAGA and ask them a very simple question, which is this. What if the views and outcomes and conclusions that you hold, what if they might be wrong? What if they lack nuance? What if they're too black and white? And what I like to say is not a world of gray, but a very multicolored world. And I'm not talking about that in race. And I've had some conversations like that, not many admittedly. But when I ask those questions, I can see the gears, the cogs moving. Have you found allies at this point? Have you found people who might fund you? Have you found uh, platforms that want to help you share this word? I give thanks for a lot of what we call the earned media, whether it's my articles or Washington Post. I've had other networks come out and reach out to me. We're, we're still trying to figure out how we can make it work. But I've, I've had actually those, uh, some of whom are investors who have come to me organically, not my reaching out to them. This is where I like to insert my joke that my wife does not like, which is, I cannot believe that actual serious people want to hear what I have to say. I was just recently contacted by the Norwegian version of NPR and PBS. They have someone there who produces and hosts. It's been two seasons. They're, they're going to get ready for a third about American politics is about hopefulness. And they reached out to me and they asked me and said, Rich, would you be willing to, to sit down for an interview? And I'm at this stage right now, Nathaniel, where, of course, I'll vet everywhere to make sure that I'm not going on like a coup. A coup well, look, I, I understand if you said yes to me, like, you know, yeah, you got I mean, pretty low standards. <laughs> well, I mean, proves to you, I'm willing to go anywhere. But, yeah. you know, I, I am, you know, without saying facetious here, I am, I am willing to get in front of whatever groups, whatever medium I can. And I, and I am committed to making this the next chapter in my career. I mentioned before being a journalist, I've got a background in business, background in technology. But at 46 years old, soon to be 47, I, I, I feel like I've just gone full circle and I'm right back to this work of maybe wanting to be, a, broadly speaking, a, a journalist, maybe not in the traditional sense. And someone not only to bring the good news to the afflicted, but to encourage others that in this work of helping others lead MAGA to quote the book of Romans, it's going to require an immense, we have to be patient in our affliction. I mean, it feels like you need what you need one or more of you in every precinct. Yeah. We need a benevolent army. We we do because we have to have a, a, a distribution network of those who can disseminate this story, get in front of others not get in front of the necessary, just the like-minded, just so everyone says, yeah, 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 that's right. That's true, Rich. I agree. But to say, no, 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 there actually, there is a role for those who are in, who, who have those. So have you found anybody else to come along into that army so far? Are there any other riches out there? I've, I've not had anyone who's what I would consider made the full departure 
out of MAGA. So you're a pretty slim read of hope. I, I, I am someone now who, uh, and this is something that many say to me often. And again, I'm not, I'm humbled that people would say this, but one of the, the, one of the common refrains and comments I receive all the time is, you know, it's, there's really nobody doing this. And I know there's like some of the Lincoln project people, you know, the Joe Walsh's and most of them never went over. They didn't right. go, they weren't so, in so It's a little bit different, right? right? right. It's different. Right. I, it, there are, I think, a substantial number of Republicans who were never Trump Republicans who didn't drink the Kool-Aid, to use the unfortunate cult reference. I imbibed it. Let me tell you, I imbibed it for, for half a decade. And I am, I am yes, I, I am humbled and grateful that many recognize that. And I find myself in this very, very unlikely unexpected place because I never ever could have envisioned being this leaving MAGA activist, which is what I just stumbled into. So what happens when you, when Trump wins the election and the guy that you used to resonate to calls you back? As much as I want to keep our conversation as optimistic as possible, uh, not necessarily do uh, being a doe-eyed optimist, but try to keep it as hopeful and optimistic as possible. Let me prognosticate for a moment, and then I will give what is not at all an optimistic take on it. So not to sound self-aggrandizing here, but I've got a pretty good track record of accurate predictions. Okay, I mentioned before about being on public record, Trump would win the nomination, would win the general election. Yes, I thought Trump would win in 2020, but I was I was not at all surprised when Biden won. And in the past midterms, I was telling many, I actually think the Democrats are going to do a lot better than people think. And my prediction for next year, and I'm going to say this with cautious optimism, I think the Republican Party in its current form is going to be mercy killed next year. And I think there is going to be a. You mean after the after a loss, or do you uh, mean? Yes, I, I I think there is going to be a historic electoral revolt revolt against the Republican Party next year, and and there are lots of reasons why I think that, but I'm going to give one. I, I think that is backed up solidly by data, especially voter turnout data. The reason someone doesn't vote is because they lack a compelling reason to do so. There are going to be. I predict more single issue voters who are going to come out to the polls next year than ever before in any election in the history of the United States. And those single issues range from one or more of the above firearms, particularly this epidemic of gun caused violence. And as a side note, I'm a firearm owner and I have a concealed carry permit. So I'm a person who actually does carry a firearm. And I say that we're about half a century lagging in gun safety laws at the federal level. But that's a different conversation. So you have firearms, you have abortion, you have attacks on educators, uh, the Supreme Court, climate change. If you think about all those issues, if someone is voting based on one or more of those issues, the vast majority of them are going to break vote. Boy, I hope that would be right. If I had to predict, I'd predict close again. And it seems a pretty safe prediction. Yes. And, and, and that's, the, that's the flip side of this, which is because many will ask me even after that prediction, well, but don't you think that, that Trump could win? And I said, absolutely, he could. There's no guarantee of him losing. And there's a variety of factors for that, right? One is the Electoral College. The other is what I mentioned at the outset about apoliticism. Apoliticism creates its own bubble. I have this running joke with some of my colleagues where I say to them, we have a Wawa, so that's the, that's the gas station down here in South Florida, right, amongst some other places. And I always tell them, I said, I'll make you a gentleman's bet. Go over to the Wawa and ask 100 random people there, hey, do you know who Jack Smith is? Go ask them if they know who General Milley is. The cereal company, General Mills, and they always laugh about this because they know I'm correct. And I always tell them I'd be shocked if two people out of 100 knew. The point of that gentleman's bet is that most of the electorate isn't political. They don't pay attention. It's not a matter of intelligence or intellect. It is a matter of them not paying attention until a month or two before an election. And that right there, when we think about so-called swing voters, I do see this as pretty much black and white. They're going to look at all of these Trump indictments and what I expect will be convictions. They're going to look at these convictions and they're going to fall into one of two camps. Number one, they're going to say, man, this guy really is a criminal. 
or they're going to fall into another camp, which is, but he's, yeah, I know he's not the, I know he's not the nicest guy, the best guy, but is he, is he really guilty of all of these? It sounds to me like maybe he is targeted and persecuted. And that very well could be the case with so many swing voters. And if Trump, if he were to win, I think that our democracy will be. Well, we'll be in for a fight. We'll be in for a big fight. I actually see it as more dire. I think it'll be irreparably broken. And I think the experiment will end. And I don't know what that'll mean. I don't know what that looks like because there is no country in the history of the world like the United States. We're a multiracial, multiethnic, multireligious, including freedom from religion, hybrid democracy republic where we we elect directly our representatives and we're the most powerful economy and most powerful military. We don't have another example past the present where we could look and say, well, what happened when democracy was irreversibly damaged? Or how do we deal with poverty or racism? In many ways, we actually are, for the most part, on our own in trying to figure out this experiment because there is not another nation that checks all those boxes I mentioned. And I do think that another Trump presidency is going to end the experiment as it was created and founded by the framers. You were saying something very similar about what would happen if Hillary won or Biden won. What is up with you in catastrophizing? So on that point, I try to be fair about this point and, and, and put myself in the positions of others. They're, they're, the comments I receive from MAGA voters right now always essentially are the same in the same vein, and they go like this. This guy wasn't really Trump voter. This guy wasn't really MAGA. He's a paid shill, which, look, anyone out there who's saying I'm a paid shill, I'm waiting to see some of this money. I, I've got lots of ways you can pay me. If you want to make me a paid shill, I can let you know. There's lots. Of, just direct message me from my website. I'll get it. To you. And, and, I, and I always laugh, and I, I know that just comes with the territory. I think if the progressive world were paying shills, we'd have a lot more of them coming out. Uh, yeah. Of and I say that all the time. I say, well, you know, there's, if, if they're paying, they're wait, they're definitely wasting their money or they're investing it in the wrong, the wrong places. I understand actually why some might be suspicious of this changing of my mind. There are some I know who have actually called it miraculous. And I always joke at them and say, well, I'm an excommunicated Catholic. So if the divine is looking down on me, you know, thankfully, I get why people might be skeptical. I, I actually really do. I allowed myself to be traumatized by all of the right-wing mythologies that are integrated into MAGA. MAGA is not the first iteration of right-wing mythologies, and it will not be the last. And that's why leaving MAGA is long-term work. It's going to be a step forward and three steps back at times. It's necessary civic work because we do have an inevitable reconciliation coming in our country. And we're going to need to figure out ways for tens and tens and tens of millions of Americans. We don't need to necessarily like or love each other, but to harmoniously live together. And one of the ways that I think I can be an advocate for is that when I came out of MAGA, I so came to appreciate that for a democracy to be functional and healthy, the vast, vast majority of people need to agree on basic sets of facts. Trump lost the election. The COVID vaccine doesn't kill anyone. These are basic sets of facts. And if we have more and more who don't accept basic sets of facts, we just keep moving the lines about what is accurate and what isn't. And if we just keep moving those lines, our democracy will continue to become more and more dysfunctional. It is a hazardous time. And I do appreciate the efforts that you are making and planning to make in trying to move the country, not just away from MAGA, but to, I assume, a more wholesome place for your children and your friends and yourself. So thank you for that. Is there something I should have asked you that I didn't? Uh, well, thank you for the questions. And I appreciate that you asked some, really trying to get into the, the thinking, you know, the, the brain, heart and soul of this. I would like to mention and perhaps conclude with another optimistic point uh, that I that I think people can come away with feeling like, okay, maybe we actually can succeed and be victorious next year. Our country has a very, very long and successful history 
when the moment calls for it of forming necessary but unlikely alliances. And we could go all the way back to day one of our country when Hamilton encouraged his fellow Federalists to support Jefferson over Burr, which was a decision that cost him his life, up through the Civil War, when Lincoln had to side with the Union against the Confederacy. And they were Americans, and Lincoln understood that but needed to make the decision. All the way up through World War II with the U.S. and Soviet Union, uh, a higher percentage of Republicans in Congress than Democrats sided with LBJ on the Voting Rights Act and Civil Rights Act in 64 and 65. There's others also. But right now, Nathaniel, I see this moment, this moment of our history. I believe that our reputation of having this very successful track record of these unlikely but necessary alliances, I don't think our democracy is ready to end. Democracies all throughout world history have always ended. John Adams wrote that. I don't believe that it is our time right now, because I do think that when it comes time to make that decision of how to vote, there's going to be unlikely alliances. But I believe that they are going to be unlikely as advocates of preserving and strengthening our democracy and democratic institutions. So I, I have to believe I, I'm going to continue to believe that because our, our history shows that there is very good reason to actually believe that. And if anyone would like to reach out to me, Again, my site, perfectourunion.us. I've got my articles, my videos, my social media. I always welcome comments. Uh, I'm not, just to be clear, I am not a psychologist or psychiatrist or trained in anything in therapy or clinical. So when I talk about political trauma, I'm really using a personal definition. But if there are any out there who do feel like that they can benefit from my story and my experiences... I do not want anyone to hesitate in reaching me. Perfectourunion.us is how they can find me. All right, Rich. Thanks much for taking the time. My pleasure, Nathaniel. Anytime. Thank you. That was Rich Logis. He's at Perfect Our Union on X. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.